This morning we are continuing our journey through Acts, which has been all about been all about asking the question of how do we discern God's will? How do you discern, how do you know what God desires for your life in southeast Pennsylvania in 2019? How in the world are you supposed to know? How are we supposed to figure this out? Well, clearly the word of God. But we've got um, some amazing stories in Acts because every step of the way, they didn't have the New Testament, and that every single step of the way they were building this plane while it was flying. <laughs> so as much as we might feel like we're in the dark sometimes, they were even more so. And yet they walked faithfully with the Lord through prayer, uh, through studying the Hebrew scriptures, through walking in community, uh, through being with one another. And so our journey through Acts has been about asking the question, how do we as a church learn how to do discernment? How do we as individuals learn how to discern God's will? This morning's uh, text comes from the end of Acts 19. We were at the beginning a couple weeks ago, and then we took a break last week for Netzer Sunday. So just for a little context before I read the passage, Paul has been serving in Ephesus for two years. This is during his third missionary journey. While he's been in Ephesus, extraordinary miracles have been taking place. Remember a couple weeks ago when I compared magic and miracles and how they're different and we see that as Paul was preaching the gospel people were coming to Christ it says earlier in Acts 19 that all of Asia heard the word of God and then there was that strange story about the Jewish exorcist who tried to cast out the demon and they said they said to the demon possessed man in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches we command you to come out of the man and then the man overpowered them, stripped them naked, beat them up, and kicked them out of the house. So as everyone heard that story in the area, and they feared the Lord, and many of those who had expensive magic books, dark magic books, brought them and gave them to the church, and they burned them. And it was worth thousands and thousands of silver coins, it says. And so this is the context for the story that we come to today. This is probably... Um, the point in Paul's ministry where he has had the most success in the way that we think about success. Many people coming to the Lord, powerful miracles happening, all sorts of good things happening. There hasn't been persecution up to this point. He has been rooting out the demonic stronghold behind what uh, the, the principalities in Ephesus. And now in this story, the principalities are going to push back. Anyone ever tried to deal with a sin in their life and the sin pushed back? We've all had this experience, right? You try to deal with addiction and the addiction pushes back harder than ever. You try to deal with a sin in your life and the more that you try to deal with it, the harder it seems to just have basic functionality. So Paul has been, uh, along with the other believers, has been rooting out the demonic principalities in Ephesus. And now they are going to push back and we're going to look at some principles that we can learn from, uh, from this story. I'm going to read the full passage over us this morning. And then we'll talk about the story. This is Acts chapter 19 from the ESV. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way it was just the nickname for Christians. Around that time, there arose no little disturbance. So that's just a fancy way of saying there was a big disturbance. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These little silver shrines that Demetrius made, you can still buy them if you would go to Ephesus today. They make replicas. They're these little silver statues. And Artemis, the goddess Artemis, was the goddess of fertility. Anybody know what her statue looks like? Yeah? It's like, like, excuse me, but this is what it is. Her whole body is breasts. She's the goddess of fertility. So all of these little statues, the goddess of fertility, Artemis, are spread throughout the city of Ephesus. This is who the people sacrifice to and bow down to. And you can imagine the type of worship that a goddess of fertility would have required in the temple. Now, in the temple of Ephesus, this is really fascinating. Anybody know uh, what, what made the temple of Ephesus so famous? It was one of the seven wonders of the world the temple in Ephesus to Artemis. Larger than the size of a football field. Not a modern stadium, not a football stadium, but larger than a football field was the temple to Ephesus. A massive, ancient structure that was famous throughout the entire earth. Ephesus was a city that Artemis had made a few people very, very, very wealthy. Demetrius is one of them. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, that gods made with hands are not gods. If you remember the psalm that I connected a few weeks ago to about idolatry in Athens, Psalm 115, which I believe Paul was, was deep in his heart. Psalm 115 says, it, it just goes off on idols. It says they have eyes but do not see, hands but do not feel, ears but do not hear. And those who make them what? Do you remember? become like them. This is the main point for this morning, so hear this. Those who make idols or engage in idolatry embody the spirit that's behind it and become like them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who worship them, Psalm 115. This is happening in Ephesus. These men, as they, these men and women, these people, as they've worshipped these idols, they, become, they begin to embody it with the same principalities, the same persuasions, the same thoughts that are behind Artemis. Just like Luke had said earlier in the chapter, the gospel's gone out to all of Asia. Demetrius is looking around and saying, Paul is preaching throughout all of Asia, and he has put us in an economic bind. He's saying... That God made with hands are not God's. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world Worship. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Everyone across the Roman Empire, even with a basic knowledge and education, would have known about this temple. It was famous throughout the earth. 
Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. We don't know much about Gaius and Aristarchus, but they were probably from Thessalonica or Philippi, one of the churches that Paul had already planted in Macedonia, and now they've come down to serve with him over in Asia and Ephesus. Paul's not there when the crowd reaches whatever house they went to, but they grab these two guys, and they bring them with him. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So Paul, he hears what's happening, and his desire is to go in and face it. He's not shirking from this. He's not hiding. He wants to step in, but his disciples refrain him. I would like to have been a fly on the wall to see what that was like. Can you imagine trying to restrain Paul <laughs> in that situation? I, did they tie him down? <laughs> like, how do you restrain him in that situation? They, but regardless, they wouldn't let him. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, so those from Ephesus or the surrounding area, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Switch scenes back to the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> There's all these people and they don't even know why they're there. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now remember, back in this time, Judaism and Christianity are not seen as two different religions. The Christians, the other Christians, still considered themselves Jews. Paul certainly did. Peter did. John did. They considered themselves Jewish. They considered Jesus the true Jew, the fulfillment of all that God had done in the Jewish people. And so there's confusion in the crowd, and apparently they start questioning a Jewish man who's not a Christian, this Alexander. But when the crowd sees that he's Jewish, they get even more angry. So anti-Semitism, which is as old as Abraham, starts again. Verse 34, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, if you say this in Greek, this phrase, it has a rhythm to it. There's like a rhythmic pulsating uh, tempo to how you say this. So this whole stadium for two hours, yelling out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Louder and louder and louder. You ever been in a stadium where the crowd just lets loose the cry and you feel it in your chest? The thunderous roar. Man, if Luke has a set piece from a movie in all of Acts, this is it. You can picture it. Picture being in this theater and these men and women crying out and the confusion. And imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian and hearing that, the demonic uproar, the fear. Many of them probably thought, this is it. This is when it all ends for me. Verse 35 and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, I'm sorry, did I skip? 
No, I didn't. <laughs> two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great. Okay, so after two hours of this crying out, the town clerk finally quiets the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? Remember, this is a wonder of the ancient world and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. So the, the legend was there was a meteorite that fell from the heavens into Ephesus, and they built this temple around this meteorite. And the meteorite, when you looked at it through a certain, a certain lighting, at a certain angle, it looked like the goddess Artemis. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So here's a man of wisdom, legitimate wisdom. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our God. So apparently he, the town clerk, has heard Paul preach. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. It's like letting the air out of a balloon. And just like that, with these words spoken, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And after two hours, I guess they had tuckered themselves out like a toddler screaming at night. And then it's quiet. And they leave. It says, after the uproar ceased, verse 1 of 20, and this is where we'll end in the scripture today. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. My time here has come to an end. <laughs> and he quietly uh, takes off after encouraging. So what can we learn from this story? This magnificent set piece, this theatrical craziness. Well, I think there's actually quite a bit for us to learn about the nature of the demonic and the nature of sin. Here are a few things that, for me, I think are really important as we wrestle with sin and idolatry. This is sort of the Sunday school look at the different forms of sin, but it's the place to start in conversation. So this is how I tend to think of sin, and obviously it goes much deeper than this, but these are basic definitions that can be helpful. Sin means missing the mark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a mark that God has set up for each of our lives that we are to attain to, to fulfill, to be who we're meant to be, but all of us have fallen short of that. None of us have been able to be, to stand upright to the full stature of who we are. All of us have sinned and fallen short. Amen? Recognize this? All right. Transgression's a little bit different. Instead of falling short, transgression is when we go too far. There are certain places and many places where God has set a boundary and said, go up to here and no further. When we transgress, we're trespassing. What does it mean to trespass? It means you go into territory that does not, you do not have the right to go into. So when we transgress, we're overstepping the boundaries that God has laid. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glo uh, glory, and all of us have transgressed and gone further in many ways than he told us to stop. Does that make sense? All right, that's sin, that's transgression. Idolatry is a little bit different. Idolatry is worship given to anything other than God. So this is another type of sin. It's another type of transgression. It's when we worship what belongs to God 
We give to something else what belongs to God. And, and this, of course, is the point of Psalm 115. They're not alive. <laughs> Idols are not alive. They're not actually a thing. Worship belongs to God alone. And you've heard me say this before, but it cannot be repeated too many times. You worship whatever you're afraid of. This is why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Whatever you fear, you give your attention, adoration, money, thoughts. It will go towards that thing you're afraid of. So think about the things you're afraid of in life. And there is a pretty much 100% chance that that thing will be an idol in some level in your life. All fear belongs to the Lord. But the amazing thing about walking with God is what does God say when we fear him? When we fear God, he says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Be strong and courageous. The only way to deal with fear is to fear God. That's it. It's the only way you can deal with fear. It's also the only way we can worship God. It's the beginning of wisdom, and it's the beginning of worship. So all worship given to anything other than God is idolatry. Sin, transgression, and here's the point. Sin, transgressions, and idolatry can all happen on an individual or corporate or even societal level. It's as true for me to say I've sinned as it is to say we've sinned as a church, have we not? As it is to say we, East Coventry, have sinned. We, Pottstown, have sinned. We, Pennsylvania, have sinned. We, America, have sinned. All the earth has sinned, right? We can all draw those concentric circles with rippling effects outward. Sin is both personal and corporate, societal, even governmental. When sin, and here, here's really the key point, so read this last paragraph. When sin becomes culturally normative, when, it becomes, when a sin becomes so normal that you don't even think about it anymore, with systemic implications, that's when it becomes iniquity. Everybody say iniquity. Iniquity is different than sin or transgressions or idolatry. Because what iniquity is, is when sin and transgression and idolatry becomes culturally normative, multi-generational. When sin becomes culturally normative with systemic implications, it becomes iniquity. One way to think about iniquity is to think about systemic, cultural, and multi-generational failure or sin. What is America's original sin? Great iniquity. What's that? Slavery. So we can think about this on an individual level. We can think about it on a historic level. This year, 2019, anybody know what this marks? It's the 400th anniversary of something. Yep, 400th anniversary. This year is the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship from Africa arriving on the shores of North America. And man, we have been struggling with that thing ever since. When sin becomes culturally normative, when it's so normal that it has systemic implications, it becomes iniquity. Think about this, in the Deep South, 150 years ago, prior, just prior to the Civil War, men of the cloth, preachers with the collar on, would stand at the pulpit and turn to Philemon and preach to the slaves standing outside the door and those gathered in there. This is what the word of God says, slaves submit to your masters. These are men with theological educations whose whole life is to preach God's word, preaching from the pulpit, 
that slavery in the, all of its forms in the Deep South was justified. That's iniquity. When sin becomes that deep that we cannot even see it on that level, that is what iniquity is. Continuing with this thought, there's some implications of iniquitous idolatry. The idolatry becomes so normative that it is no longer visible in the context of the culture it exists within. So in that situation in the Deep South, it required people from, uh, God bless the people who were in that system who had the eyes to see. Thank God for them. But when sin is that normative, it takes an outside person to come and say, this isn't okay. Do you have anything in your life? Do I have anything in my life that I struggle with on such a normative, deep level that I need someone else to come and say, it's not okay the way that you talk to her. It's not okay the way that you spend your money on this. Like, that's not how God's called us to live. Of course this makes sense. On an individual level, we all know we need counsel. We need outside view. We need people. This also happens on societal level. We need people who see things differently. If you ask someone from America who comes and visits for the first time, what do we struggle with? I guarantee you they'll say something that you hadn't thought of. Because they have a different perspective. And if you go there, it'll be the same. You'll be able to see a different perspective. So the idolatry becomes so normative that it is no longer visible in the context of the culture it exists within. Second bullet point, the idol will seek to embed. Now listen to this one. This is so fascinating. The idol will seek to embed and entrench itself economically to the extent that the vitality of the local economy comes under threat when the idol is threatened. Acts 19. Paul, rooting out idolatry. Oh no! The whole system's going into disrepute. We're going to lose our business and the business that comes from our business, and the business that comes from that business, and the whole economy is going to collapse because people stop worshiping Artemis. We still do this today. Idolatry, it always seeks to entrench itself economically so that if you deal with it, the economic system collapses in on itself. All right, anybody know the uh, tagline for the Pennsylvania lottery? Come on, say it out loud. You know, you don't have to be shy. What's that? Well, keep on scratching. No, the one, the one underneath that. <laughs> keep on scratching. Which is profound, right? If you got an itch, keep on scratching. No, underneath that, what's, what's the, the, the uh, thing? Benefits older Pennsylvanians every day. Now, if you go on their website, I did this. You can see the breakdown of how every single dollar that's spent on the Pennsylvania lottery is spent. And there is a portion of it, a significant portion of every dollar percentage that goes to, uh, to legitimate, like I, I'm saying legitimate resources to older Pennsylvanians. They're not lying when they say that on some level. Every dollar that's spent on the Pennsylvania lottery does actually benefit older Pennsylvanians and the systems there. So here's the thing. Here's the lie from the idol. If you stop buying this thing, who suffers? 
senior citizen. You don't want to hurt senior citizens. What kind of monster are you? This is what idols do. They entrench themselves economically so that if you tear down the idol, the things that are attached to it fall with it. And mighty is the fall. If all of Pennsylvania were to stop playing the lottery, that would be a very good thing on one level. There's programs that wouldn't make it. Legitimate good programs that would not make it. Is part of Jesus saying, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. What king builds a tower without first counting the cost? Otherwise, he gets halfway done, and he's like, I can't do it. What king goes out to war without seeing if whether he can defeat the enemy with the number he has? Because what a bad situation to find yourself outnumbered and overwhelmed. But count the cost. This is a very real thing. Whatever idols you and I are worshiping, there will be economic ramifications to it. The third one, the idol will seek to embed and entrench itself in the identity of the culture to the extent that the very identity of the people themselves feels threatened when the idol is threatened. I could take this all sorts of directions. So Demetrius, the silversmith in Ephesus, Artemis is threatened, the idol, I'm threatened. This is, this is a threat against me. She's going into disrepute. Everyone's going to think I'm a laughingstock. Idols do the same thing today. I've said this statistic in a number of places because we should be uncomfortable with this. How many, uh, how many dollars is the Town School District underfunded this year? $9 million. $9 million. The, the Pottstown School District is $9 million underfunded. They, they're cutting art programs. They're cutting music programs. They're cutting essential programs for kids. Is that any of the kids who go their fault? All right. How many dollars? I'm not condoning this. Iran should not have shot down the drone that they shot down. <laughs> that was bad. That was not good. How many dollars did that drone cost? Okay, okay. We'll go with 30. $30 million for this drone. I'm not condoning what they did. Don't, don't hear that. They should not have done that. And I know it served a purpose, and we benefit from that purpose. And I'm not saying otherwise. What I am saying, there's a problem. Our school district with hundreds, thousands of kids in it, $9 million underfunded. Now, there's a segment of the population, this happens on both sides of the political spectrum, where if you talk and just ask questions, what do the people feel like you're threatening? The identity. The military industrial complex, Dwight Eisenhower famously named this 60 years ago, where our economy is built on endless production of weaponry. And if we would stop building weapons, our economy would collapse. If we question that, not everyone, but there's a, a segment of the population who will say, if you question that, you are unpatriotic and you don't support soldiers. 
which is utterly ridiculous. <laughs> it's utterly ridiculous. It's utterly, it's a lie from hell. We can question things. We can question things. We can question, it's questions. We can have conversations. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that you can't have conversations. You can have conversations and you can question, amen? Man, we can have conversations. And, and I'm tempted to do the same thing. So don't see me on a soapbox. See me down in the dust repenting. Because when people threaten the church and question the church, legitimate questions, legitimate questions against the church, what is my instinct? They're questioning me as a pastor. They're questioning me. They're, they're questioning my reputation. They're questioning my, my standing. So I don't mean this as like, I mean, this is the human condition. This is the human condition of idolatry. The idol will seek to embed and entrench itself in the identity of the culture to the extent that the very identity of the people themselves feel threatened when the idol is threatened. Does that make sense? You see this progression? We see all of this in Acts 19. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. War is not according to the flesh, church. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete couple things from this famous passage. First of all, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Amen? That's not our battle. Don't be, I mean, you're going to be tempted every day to enter into the battle of the flesh. The enemy always wants to fight on his terms. He wants to, the enemy always wants to say, this is the battlefield, this is how you have to fight me. Think of David and Goliath. Goliath steps out, you know, representative of the enemy. He steps out, and before the people of God, he says, Okay, we're not going to fight two armies against each other. You're going to fight me. One of you is going to fight me. So he comes out and he dictates how the Israelites will fight the battle. And you know what they do? They agree to it. They agree to it. Oh, that must be how we have to fight this battle. That must be what we have to do. You know what they could have said? I know. We're coming together because God has called us a people, a nation. So now. And this is a totally different story. And we don't have a great children's story. But man, we should learn from that, should we not? The enemy will always seek to dictate the terms of the battlefield. And you and I have the ability in Christ to say, no, I'm not fighting you over there. I'm fighting over here. Because this is where God has called me. You understand what I'm saying? The weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh. We don't fight those battles. We fight these battles. What battles? Well, the battles that are arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. If you're fighting a battle other than one of those, you're fighting the wrong battle. And you're going to get your butt whooped. Because you're fighting on the terms of the enemy. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Last point, and this is so important in this. Notice that Paul, who we think of as the super apostle, you know, Jesus is here, Paul's right there. He was a dude who sinned. Paul, who we have such a high view of, he says this. He does not say the weapons of my warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine uh, power to destroy the strongholds. He doesn't say, I destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and I take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, (laughs) or my obedience is complete. Now, he doesn't do that. What's he say? Oh, you do not face a single battle that you have what it takes to face on your own. And this is the power of secret sin over us, right? Where the enemy's like, you got to fight this alone. You're all by yourself. Nobody can understand it. Nobody cares about you. And if they found out, they'd reject you and hate you. Every single one of us has this place. This didn't look like this, but every single one of us has it. The weapons of our warfare. The only way that I can deal with the strongholds in my life is to invite you in. The only way that you can deal with the strongholds in your life is to invite us in. Because my sword is a little bit different than your bow, Jason. And Byron's shield is a little different than Jeff's helmet. And Jared and Steph have some pretty sweet boots on, which are a little bit different than the belt that Miss Leona's wearing back there. Our armor, our weaponry is only at its full capacity when we do it together. And we see this modeled so well by Paul. In each place he goes where he faces spiritual strongholds, he refuses to be isolated and alone. He includes everywhere he goes people to be with him, to fight with him, to war with him, to go with him. And we must be doing the same thing. I'm going to name an iniquity at Parker Ford. And if you, uh, you, some of you have probably heard me say this before. Um, I think that, that Parker Ford's greatest gift, uh, gift from the Lord, like spiritual gift, is the gift of generosity. So if you think of the seven gifts in Romans chapter 12, one of them is if you are generous, then give generously. I think that's our gift. When I look back over the history of Parker Ford Church, not just financially, but relationally, financially, spiritually, I think God has created us to be a generous body. And when Parker Ford is flowing in generosity, things go really well here. And I also don't think that we can outgive God. I do not think that Parker Ford Church can outgive God. To the extent that we release and flow and bless the kingdom of God, God continues to pour into this little body. Praise God. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? All right, there's a dark side to that. Every gift has a dark side. My gift is the gift of mercy. My dark side is manipulation. I can make people feel what I want them to feel. I can manipulate them. So I have to be careful about that. Parker Ford, uh, Parker Ford uh, 
the gift of generosity, the, the dark side of that is control. And when I look back on the history of Parker Ford, our deepest sin is control. The iniquity of control, seeking control. Power wrestling, positional wrestling, different things that have happened throughout the history. It's, it's a spirit that seeks. What control does is as God's pouring out his blessing, what control does is it puts a lid on it. And it says, so much and no more, and it puts a bottom on it. Well, we can't let go of that because then we'll lose this. We can't release that because then that won't be here. It seeks to control. Can you hold, theoretically, could you hold more things like this or like this? In which posture can you actually hold more? Like this. The spirit of control tells you, if you don't grip this thing, you'll lose it. They'll take it from you. But then God's like trying to pour and try holding sand like this. Try holding marbles like this. Try holding God's blessings like that. You can't. So as a generous people, as we face the stronghold of control in our church and in our own lives, the weapons of our warfare tear down lofty arguments. God won't take care of you. God won't provide. God won't give you what you need. You're going to lack. You're going to fall apart. Whatever the lie is. And we can just say, uh, no, that's not the battle we're facing. The battle is this, that God has called us to be a blessing that we might bless others. And so we do not hold things like this. We hold them like this. Amen? All right. The last song we're going to sing is a song that might be new um, to you. It's called The Great I Am, where we declare the greatness of God. Praise team, you can come up. And in the, the bridge of the song, it says, The mountains shake before him, the demons run and flee. At the mention of your name, King of Majesty, there is no power in hell, nor any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. We needed to sing that today. And so this may be new for you, but you can just shout. That's good. That's a battle cry. Or if you already know it, join with us in singing. Byron, do you have something to share? Parker Ford Church, those visiting with us today from the community, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is just like it. May you love your neighbor as yourself. Now go in his name, making disciples wherever he has called you, baptizing them, preaching, sharing your life, and freeing them from demonic principalities through the weaponry that God has gifted you with. Let me pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Go with God.